It's a special day. Today is the 11th of April, 2021. The passage today we're going through is Isaiah chapter 21. So very few times does a pastor get to say this. Today, you're going to get the 411 on Isaiah 21. And are you ready for it? On 411.21. Think about that for a moment. Yeah, pretty good, huh? So, chapter 21 today has us again looking at a short-term prophecy that's going to come about, but it also refers again to that day of the Lord. Three weeks ago, and and that's before we went into Passion Week, Palm Sunday and and Good Friday and Easter, and thank you guys for all that. That was a tremendous, tremendous sermons and, and just worship. Loved them. But before we went into that, Al took us through the end of a series of oracles that went from Isaiah 13 and it ended in chapter 20. And all those oracles, they had the same basic theme as we went through them. And and what they showed us is that the world is in God's hands and all of his promises will be fulfilled. Now we're going to go into a shorter second series of oracles that's going to start today in 21. It's going to end in 23. And it's going to offer a complete contrast of what we saw in the first series. We're going to start off with the vision of the coming judgment that causes Isaiah to describe the anguish and pain it causes him to see this. And that's in verse 3. In the second, it's short oracles in 21, we're going to see verses 11 and 12. They're going to talk about this lone voice calling in the darkness asking about when's it's gonna when's it gonna be morning and we're gonna see a prediction of darkness yet to come and the third oracle in in 21 we're gonna see a gentile world asking for help but not finding any true help okay how do you go away so we can see from this series in chapters 21 through 23, they describe a world in shadows. They describe a world in shadows. So let's pray. Dear Jesus, we just want to come before you and tell you how much this season means to us. Um, we just see everything from, from Isaiah talking about you in the four long poems about you coming and being our suffering servant and you coming and willingly giving your life for us. May we not forget this as we progress from, from Passion Week, from Easter Week, and move on. May we see that your great love and your obedience that you gave to the Father and the love that you showed him and us as we go through this awesome, awesome book of Isaiah that talks about this. May we never forget you and your work, and may we seek 
seek the same level of obedience through our lives, never giving up, never giving in till we can strive for a deeper walk. Just be with us now. Open up our hearts and minds. Help us to put away all distractions and just give this time to you. In your precious name we pray. Amen. So Isaiah chapter 21, the 17 verses, starts off with an oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. As whirlwinds in the Negev sweep on, it comes from the wilderness from a terrible land. A stern vision is told to me. The traitor betrays and the destroyer destroys. Go up, O Elam, lay siege, O Media. All the sighing she has caused I bring to an end. Therefore, my loins are filled with anguish. Pangs have seized me like the pangs of a woman in labor. I am bowed down so I cannot hear. I am so dismayed I cannot see. My heart staggers. Horror has appalled me. The twilight I long for has been turned for me into trembling. They prepare the table. They spread the rugs. They eat, they drink. Arise, O princes, oil the shield. For thus the Lord said to me, Go set a watchman. Let him announce what he sees. When he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, riders on donkeys, riders on camels, listen, let him listen diligently, very diligently. Then he who cried out, Upon a watchtower I stand, O Lord, continually by day, and at my post I am stationed whole nights. And behold, here come riders, horsemen in pairs. And he answered, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods. He has shattered to the ground, O oh, my threshold and my windowed one. What have I heard from the Lord of hosts of the God of Israel? I announce to you. And then the oracle of Duma, one who is calling out to me from Seir, Watchman, what time of the night? Watchman, what time of the night? The watchman says, Morning comes and also the night. If you inquire, inquire, come back again. The oracle concerning Arabia. In the thickets of in Arabia you will lodge, O caravans of the Dedanites. To the thirsty bring water, meet the fugitive with bread, O inhabitants of the land of Timah. For they have fled the swords, fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, from the press of battle. For thus the Lord said to me, Within a year, according to the years of a hired worker, all the glory of Kedar will come to an end, and the remainder of the archers of the mighty men of the sons of Kedar will be few. For the Lord, the God of Israel, has spoken. So, reading over this first part, the first oracle, Fallen, Fallen is Babylon, it can lead us to several thoughts of, of when this actually did occur. But the key to see is that, again, we see kingdoms during this thing battle for power over and over again. And during this time period, especially during this time period, but the ultimate message God is giving to us out of this is not 
concerning the coming destruction of Babylon, but the obedience and trust to God, their king. Because one of the time periods people often equate to this is, is the passage in Daniel 5. And this took place about 539 B.C. If you remember in Daniel 5, you see the king Belshazzar is getting a little happy. They're doing good. And so he's had too much wine. So he goes in and tells them, hey, go, go to, the, to the king's storeroom and grab out that gold and silver that uh, my father Nebuchadnezzar had brought out of Jerusalem. And while doing that, if you remember, there was a hand that came out and a finger drew on a wall. And that finger appeared and wrote his actual punishment on the wall. And Daniel ultimately interpreted what that meant. And it meant that, King, you have been found wanting and your life would quickly come to an end. And I give him credit because when you read this, he actually paid Daniel for that comment, saying that, you know, you're going to die and you're going to die quickly. And that's where we get the phrase, the handwriting is on the wall. Um, it means you may not see it being imminent, but danger is ahead. But, and that's, that's an interpretation you see a lot of people say when they read this, but I don't think it, it's right, and, and I will take the punishment later if, if I got this wrong. But I, I think it covers a passage closer to the present time, because if you look, and if you've, and you've read around 689 B.C., we see Babylon is conquered and utterly destroyed. And what I mean by that, utterly destroyed, the King Cyrus came in, and you can see aggression, right? Because he didn't just come in and beat him. He came in and leveled everything. Because the king at this time, he had done what, what Solomon was able to do. Solomon had stopped wars. His father, David, had created such a time of peace in the land. Solomon was building gardens, was reaching out. He was doing all these things to enhance life there. This king of Babylon was trying to do that. And he also made new gods, his own special gods and all this. Cyrus came in and defeated him, leveled everything. And then just to show us how ticked off he was at this, he released huge volumes of water over the whole city to wipe everything out, to wipe everything out. So nothing be, could be connected to Babylon. And then looking back on it, when we read and getting into verse 3 and 4, I doubt Babylon being defeated by Persia in Daniel 5 would cause the anguish that we're going to see Isaiah describe. And now earlier we went over Isaiah and how upset he was that God had been watching over them and protecting them. And then when, when any kind of threat came, Hezekiah's father made a deal with Assyria for protection. Now the Babylonian leader that we're looking at during this time period, you know, Isaiah's ministry under Hezekiah, his name is Merodach Baladun, and he was the ruler that after Hezekiah recovers from the illness, and we're going to get to that later, um, he sent a visit there, an embassy of people, 
to go say, hey, congratulations. But really, in all reality, it was a spy mission. And we're going to get to that in chapter 39. But we see Isaiah probably still with this sneaky little visit from Babylon on his mind. And then God gives him a picture of what's going to occur. And Isaiah is really trying to get this people in, in this era to, hey, look, you need to stop seeking alliance with man and, and become obedient and trust in God. And remember, when we went through chapter 19, it was the same message, but they were leaning on Egypt at that time. Now, with Babylon in town, Hezekiah is probably feeling, hey, you know what? Our small city, we're being respected by a foreign, foreign power who is powerful. And God is telling him and reminding him through Isaiah and naturally us today to shy away from the world. Shy away from the world. It's not where our strength comes from. So this first oracle is seen in a contrast to the reaction of Isaiah versus the politicians in Jerusalem. Isaiah was abiding in God while the politicians were abiding in man and the so-called strength of the world. So let's go through this and remember, Hezekiah and his leaders just so you're ready, they were hearing this message from Isaiah in a very well put together song as he would sing it. So I need someone to give me a, a C. No, but actually I'm just going to give you the English version. Non-singing, non I'm sorry. The music team is not, not helping me out here. Okay, so we're going to see in verses 1 and the beginning of 2, it's going to be a vision received, a vision received. In the back half of 2, what scholars call 2B, and we're not going to do, or not to be, but we're going to do 2B, the end realized. Verses 3 and 4, verses 3 and 4 is a reaction to the horror scene. Five is a reaction to pleasure. Verses 6 through 9 are going to be an end accomplished. An end accomplished. And then verse 10 is a message reported. A message reported. So verses 1 and 2a, a message received. An oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea as whirlwinds in the Negev sweep on, it comes from the wilderness, from a terrible land, and a stern vision is told to me. The traitor betrays, and the destroyer destroys. Now, wilderness of the sea could also be translated and said desert by the sea. And this area may have been around the Persian Gulf. Um, it was around the area where Merodach Baladun lived. And I, I want to point out that in this first verse alone, we see two references to the world word 
wilderness, and that's important. When we think of what is happening overall in these oracles, and then previously, it, it is knowing that God is sovereign, and he has proven it over and over again, but his people are continually not seeking after him, but they're seeking after the world. We saw that Ahaz had joined up with Assyria, later Egypt, as their protector, and soon we will see the part in Isaiah that discusses Babylon being their partner. And what, what I'm getting at, and it, it probably is just me, but I, I see a reminder in this first verse alone by the world wilderness, remind that, hey, you know, God took them through that to the promised land. And the first group didn't get it, right? When we look back, the first group didn't get it. So he extended the journey 40 more years before allowing people to enter the promised land. So here we are, and, and they still aren't trusting God as, as his people. And unfortunately, most of the world will continue this tradition until Christ comes and settles the final account. And then the part, as the whirlwinds of the Negev sweep on. The Negev, or how it's spelled now when you, when you look at it, is not a B at the end, but it's a V. It's a southern desert that now belongs solely to Israel. It's about 4,700 square miles. And its term here in regards to the wilderness is perfect since Moses and the people lived there for a period of time during their wanderings. And being a, de a desert, it sees lots of dust and rainstorms, but primarily the dust and sandstorms. And what I did is I <coughs> looked at some YouTube videos. The funniest one I saw, there was a group of Israeli, like an Israeli bicycle club, riding through the Geb and they were being interviewed. And, and all of a sudden they show off from the bicyclists, they show off on the side as they're riding and you see this wall of dirt that I have never seen before. Even, even all the years of, because outside my office, I can see the dry lake bed on Edwards Air Force Base. And sometimes I can see some of the flight line in NASA. Some days all I see is a wall of dirt. Now this wall of dirt was a little bit more impressive. And it's riding, and the guy asked one of the riders, hey, is this normal? And you could see, the guy didn't have to answer. You saw the look on his face as he was pedaling harder. This was not normal. He was getting out of the way. So this is what they're trying to get across in this picture here, that the people of Judah were aware of the suddenness and how powerful these sandstorms were that came out of this region. So God is telling them Babylon's overthrow is going to be as quick. So right away, God is saying, you foolish leaders of Jerusalem, why are you repeating the same mistakes as made before? God has got to remind them, hey, look, I saved you from Assyria. I took out 185,000 men in one night, and the rest of the army departed. And remember, no shots were fired. Not from you, not from them. And you still have no faith. Babylon is going to be devastated. And it's a picture, it's a picture of the sinful world called out in Babylon in Revelation. 
it will be destroyed suddenly and without mercy. The stern, the use of the word stern in verse 2, could be understood as harsh. And it's the picture we see when we look back at 1 Kings 12.4. That may not mean anything until I tell you the story, and I'm sure you'll remember it. It's after the death of King Solomon, and the people came up to the new king, his son, King Rehoboam. And they said, you know what? You need to lighten up a little bit, because your dad was extremely hard on us. You do that, we will serve you forever. And King Rehoboam unwisely listened to his young peers and said, my dad was hard on you, I'm going to be rougher. And that did, it served God's purpose. The kingdom split. Rehoboam was left with two tribes. The northern kingdom wound up with ten. Verse 2b, and end realized. The traitor betrays and the destroyer destroys. Go up, O Elam. Go up, O Elam. Lay siege, O Media. All the sighing she has caused, I bring to an end. We will see this line again in 33.1, the destroyer. And it really originally refers to Assyria, but it can refer to any power that sets itself against God and Jerusalem. It gives us a picture of our inability to trust the world. It's not reliable. The people there cannot be trusted, and property is not respected. And in all the pain that it has caused, God is going to bring that all to an end. Verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4, a reaction to horror. Therefore, my loins are filled with anguish. Pangs have seized me like the pangs of a woman in labor. I am bowed down so I cannot hear. I am dismayed so I cannot see. My heart staggers. Horror has appalled me. The twilight I long for has been turned for me into trembling. Reading this, if we go back to chapter 13, verses 7 and 8, we see the same image of suffering, hands being feeble, hearts melting, agony seizing them like once childbirth hits. Now, if you're using today, if you're using NIV, there's some words I'm going to mention here that are missing out of it. So, in verse 3, starts off with the word, therefore. That links Isaiah's reaction to the dire or harsh that's mentioned in verse 2. And therefore, also looks forward to the explanation that begins in verse 6 with the word, for. Again, those words are missing in the NIV. Now in these verses, we get the idea of the saying, be careful what you wish for. You may get it and all that comes with it. Isaiah sees a vision here of the second coming of Christ, and it puts Isaiah into shock, both physically in verse 3 and then emotionally in verse 4. The imagery Isaiah gives us shows how much pain he was in. 
We know that when we get bad news, I'm talking bad news, or we experience something, tremendous pain here says it hits like a woman in childbirth, or to translate it for a man, it's like when a man has a cold. Same type of, same type of equation, right? And we, re, we react like Isaiah is describing here. So when you get that bad news, when something happens, you can imagine the intensity, right, of the pain being described here. I've seen it. Think about a time when you've, you've been delivered that news. Um, how have you reacted? Once the message is heard, could you process anymore? You know, it's, it's like you zone out. Um, you do not necessarily hear or see exactly what is currently going on in front of you. You're an emotional wreck, right? Because the situation might be more than you can take in or a type of sensory overload that reduces certain senses like hearing or vision. Um, I've seen this personally with, with life-changing news. I most commonly see it when I let somebody go and, and they just can't function anymore. It's almost like we have to help them out the door and into their car and, and like start it for them and put it in gear and push them. So what, what Isaiah has witnessed here is, is the last battle. Now, get this. If we think about Isaiah, there's very few people like him, right? So Isaiah had been before the throne of God, right? Now, he was no doubt longing for that time again, longing for a time where all of God's people can be there. And thus the statement in this verse, the twilight I long for, the twilight I long for, in verse 4 he says, he didn't realize the absolute consequences that came with that. Now he saw the absolute dire side of what's going to happen to God's enemies. And he uses words like horror, appalling, and trembling. He wanted people to, hey, you need to listen to me. I've seen the good and I've seen the horrific. You need to listen to me. I know what's coming, but instead, instead, he watched them chase after the world and ignored God. So, again, Isaiah has seen both heaven and the final dealing with sin, and he describes the latter one as a horrific, horrific event. Verse 5, a reaction to pleasure. They prepare the table. They spread the rugs. They eat, they drink. Arise, O princes, oil the shield. Here is the scene now. We just left Isaiah and saw the image, and he is still reeling, and we see Hezekiah and his leaders are party planning and getting ready to, to host this visiting embassy from Babylon. Isaiah wants God's people, God's chosen, to listen and obey God. And instead, here they are planning a meal to secure their friendship with the world. The part that says, Arise, O princes, and oil the shield, 
Isaiah is quoting this, quoting this verse to the after-dinner speeches by Hezekiah's leaders on how this combined group would form this holy war against the dreaded Assyrians. This had to drive Isaiah to indescribable anguish. Knowing in this vision and still being really raw about how the world was going to end and God had delivered the same message from the beginning of time to now. But Isaiah, again, in that very small group of people that got to see heaven and see the end, was, was trying so hard to get these people back to God and stop identifying with the world. Verse 5 has a deeper meaning, and it is to stop identifying with the world and to see this world, this life, through Isaiah's eyes and understanding what are God's commandments, what do we need to be doing. We need to understand that what he saw was important because it is someone, again, I'm going to keep saying it, who saw the throne of God in heaven and then Christ come at the end. Isaiah was deeply hurt at the carnage from the destruction, and he stands today, even today, even though he has not been on this earth in thousands of years, as a messenger pointing us to God. So we are not to seek after what the world offers, but as God's people, seek and grow in our level of obedience. In a verse that was written by another man that saw both, John the disciple, he wrote in Revelation 18, 1 through 4, about the fall of Babylon, meaning the world at that point. Babylon was used to reference the world. And Riley read this in the call to worship. But let's look at verse 4. It says, in Revelation 18, 4, then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. We need to stay out of the world and stop being attracted by all of her shiny objects. Verses 6 through 9, 6 through 9, an end accomplished. For thus the Lord said to me, Go set a watchman, let him announce what he sees. When he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, riders on, cam on donkeys, riders on camels, let him listen diligently, very diligently. Then he who cried out, Upon a, upon a watchtower I stand, O Lord, continually by day, and at my post I am stationed whole nights. And behold, here come the riders, horsemen in pairs, he answered, for fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. So the sovereign Lord is telling Isaiah the role he will play in the final settlement of the world for sin. We see a watchman placed in verse 6. This watchman 
by their by their the way they set things up is a person that is very reliable and will only report what is seen and will not fabricate the story. And then verse 7 talks about the riders and pairs. And this is actually speaking of the warriors in that day. They rode a horse, but they also had their best and fastest horse they pulled behind them in case they needed to mount it to flee and get out of there. Verse 8, then he who called out. And what we can also say here, it can be called, and the lion called out. Why an animal name? Um, the description of the lion is meant to show us the character of the watchman. The lion is a picture of a man with resolute strength, not about to be intimidated, and a man who would persevere in his duties both day and night. And in the end, he would announce what he was given to watch for. He would not announce the message before its time, and he would, only, he would not add to the message nor take away. And the watchman we're to see here is actually a description of God's prophets. And we see in 6.8 the care the prophets had in the obedience to God in their vocation. They had a reliability of character, the ability to listen to the message, the same as a trusted watchman. What God had to say to his people, the prophet, regardless of the situation, regardless of we know what happened to him, accurately related to the people. And then verse 9, And behold, here come the riders, horsemen and pairs. So here is the scene of the warriors and the returning back in victory. How do we know they're in victory? They're still riding in pairs. Their escape hatches are still being pulled behind them. They are not fleeing on their best mounts, returning back to the city, but riding in pairs, signifying that they are bringing home the victory. Babylon its ideology and its symbol to the world is shattered and destructed in this day, just like it will be in Revelation and the day of the Lord. Verse 10, a message reported. Here Isaiah ends the message. He saw a dire vision in verse 1 and 2, and he has reportedly, it faithfully, as a message. In its immediate intent, Hezekiah is to understand God is his security, and he is warned of that. In the cryptic title in verse 1, means Isaiah is talking about a future event too, and he's warning us, even today, to avoid getting too comfortable in this world. In Isaiah 52, 11, Isaiah warns God's people again to maintain a separate identity from the world. Is it easy? No. God shows us in this verse that his people are the crushed ones. They're on the threshing floor. On this earth, they are, they are safe and secure for eternity, but they're going to be battered and abused. And if you think about God's prophets, they're the perfect picture of this, right? 
How many of them survived and died of old age? I don't, I can't think of any. Think of his disciples. Maybe John, but it wasn't for a lack of effort, right? Boiled him, throwing stuff at him. I mean, yeah. So God is saying, you will be protected. Earth is not the final resting spot for you. Heaven is your security. This was so true for the prophets. None escaped this life without being crushed, tortured, and killed. They were those steady watchmen who faithfully discharged their duties like lions and did not become weak and develop a relationship with the world. So God has chosen us to be his people, and we need to be more like those lions in our own faith. Now Oracle 2, the long wait, the long wait, verses 11 and 12. It says, An oracle concerning Duma, the one, one is calling me from Seir. Watchman, what time of the night? Watchman, what time of the night? The watchman says, Morning comes, and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire. Come back again. So after going, these, going through these first ten verses, these two verses are great. Okay, what is Duma? If you think, this is a cousin to the people of God. Abraham's first son, through the servant woman, Hagar, Ishmael, had twelve sons that became nations. And Duma is one of them. And then we see another cousin, right? Jacob's brother Esau was called Edomites. And Seir is another word for that. So a descendant of Esau, the brother of Jacob, is coming to ask a question about what's going on. And another thing to keep in mind is Duma could also be called silence. Silence. So we see a story about silence and therefore waiting, and God is telling us nothing's happening. Nothing's happening yet during the night, but morning will come. And as we've talked about before, morning is a symbol of calm, right? There's going to be all kinds of chaos associated with the night, but morning comes and is calm. Morning is coming. And we don't know if somebody was actually sent to Jerusalem, which was common, You'd have people that weren't Jewish people would go and seek an answer from a prophet of God. Um, We don't know if someone actually went and asked him that or if God just sent Isaiah a message like from a lone voice crying out in the darkness. But we know from the previous verses we went through that Isaiah is a watchman, that watchman, that lion reporting the messages from God. And he is actually watching for this certain event. So we see this lone voice holding on, waiting for the end of the night. And basically, what he's asking is, how much more time is left? How much more time is left? Or, I am under stress, I'm suffering, I want to know how much longer. And Isaiah says in verse 12, basically, stick this stressful time out and end is coming and we will have morning he says an end is sure to come and isaiah we know saw that in verses three and four 
And until it does, he's basically saying, you can come back and ask again. It's like a child saying, are we there yet? And a parent just loves hearing that and comforts their kids and says, no, we have another hour left. Ask me again, please. Ask me again, are we there yet? Oh, I love it. So, verses 13 through 17. Needs, needs, but no solution. So, we're going to end chapter 21 looking at the fact that the world cannot and will not be able to solve its own problems. The people of the world can help other people of the world with problems, but ultimately there is no security. So 13 through 15. The oracle concerning Arabia. In the thickets of Arabia you will lodge, O caravan of the Dedanites. To the thirsty bring water, meet the fugitive with bread, O inhabitants of the land of Tima. For they have fled from swords, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, from the press, from the press of battle. So we have a people fleeing from the unrest of a time period when Assyria was in power and the whole of Arabia was suffering. Tribes had been paying tribute to the king of Assyria and then they made the mistake of trying to join against a rebellion around 715 and they were crushed. Now in verse 14 it mentions the land of Tima. This was an oasis city about 200 miles east of the Red Sea and they're being asked to assist those refugees fleeing from suffering. So like we saw in Isaiah 15 through 16.4 we have a Gentile nation in trouble from battle and they're fleeing this invading army. And in that example we had Moab seeking help and Jerusalem saying, come on in, we got you. But Moab withdrew and would not go in because it would have cost them nothing. So they would have not been able to maintain their pride. And so the knowledge we need to gain from this section is that the world cannot solve its problems. And third. 13 tells us the need here. People are on the run and, and they're at the point where they're willing to live in thickets and scrub brush well off the beaten path of traveling because they're looking for any type of safety and security. What we see is, is they had to be right in the middle of this battle because it says the battle was with drawn swords, and the press. So if you imagine this, there, it is happening right in, probably through and over them. So they are grabbing whatever they can and fleeing, looking for safety. And 15 tells us what they f fled from. These are wartime refugees. They were caught up in between armies fighting with swords, meaning close up from the press of battle, or from the heat of battle. And these civilians won out. 16 and 17 says, For thus the Lord said to me, Within a year, according to the years of a hired worker, 
all the glory of Kedar will come to an end, and the remainder of the archers and of the mighty men of the sons of Kedar will be few. For the Lord God of Israel has spoken. Isaiah is saying that the sovereign Lord is telling him what he has settled to happen in his mind. Kedar was like the largest tribal confederation of a nomadic people, and it was very well organized. And we see it ended within that year. Even secular reports said this kingdom ended in the 6th century B.C. So this organized confederation of smaller nations lost its power, and the people dwindled down. Why? I don't know why, but ultimately it's because God said so. For whatever reason, he reduced this people and gave us the word prior to it taking place. So the main point to come away with is all this is God has told us that we are his people. His people are to love him with all of our heart, soul, and mind. He is all there will be. You think about this. That's what Isaiah saw when he took his vision into heaven. All he saw was God and around that throne. So he says, don't trust in this world. It's full of traitors and people that are destructive while he and his word are faithful. Isaiah is a faithful witness in that he has seen the throne of God and the destruction that takes place, and he was devastated at what will be. But tells us, regardless of this world and its woes, we will be eternally safe and secure in the end. Praise God. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you so much for this picture. We thank you for this reminder. We thank you for just the power in these 17 verses that talk about your prophecy, talks about your ending, and reminds us where to trust. May we never forget that. Amen.